Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin. Today we're discussing the fall of Rome and the future of America. This marks our 100th episode. It's also the very first episode of season two. And I think you'll find that season two will have even better research, better predictions, and a better overall listening experience than season one. We now have new podcast artwork, a new telescope icon, new intro music from the Walton Brothers, a brand new website that has every single episode transcribed and summarized from 1 to 100, and we're going to start sending weekly email announcements whenever new episodes go live and whenever major milestones of human achievement are reached. We're also actively looking into ways to reward our early listeners with swag items such as Hence the Future stickers, Hence the Future t-shirts, and more. If you'd like to receive these swag items as a thank you gift, simply go to hencethefuture.com Scroll to the bottom of our homepage and add your email. Then tap Enter the Void. Okay, that's the end of today's preamble. Thank you so much for being a part of this community of futurists. I can't tell you how much I love what we're building here. Stay curious, continue to think independently, and never stop exploring. And now I bring you the fall of Rome and the future of America. Right, I'm here with Brett Ewer. Brett, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me again. Awesome. So I wanted to talk with you today about the fall of Rome and the future of America. And specifically, I want to know if there are lessons we can learn from the rise and fall of Rome and how we can apply those lessons to create a better future for America. So I think a good place to start would be, you know, why compare America and Rome in the first place? What's What's really tying these two civilizations together that leads to so many comparisons? Well, I think we have a pretty common reception, um, or at least there is a reception of Rome uh, by the United States. Like, right, like there's the idea that uh, our government was written with like the founders of the, of the Constitution holding up Cicero's De Republica and all of that and reading from it and basing government off of it. And a lot of our... Um, you know, I, I focus generally on government and a lot of our government institutions are based off of uh, Roman institutions, but also generally just our culture, at least, you know, maybe the mainstream of it stems largely from the developments and institutions that took place uh, in in the Roman Republic and, and the Roman Empire. So, you know, there's it's our history is intertwined with that and it's it's inextricable. Uh, and so, you know, we need to at least take a look at it and consider its effects on our current institutions and how those institutions um, might be prone to the same flaws. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, before Rome and before America, the general trend for civilizations is you have all this chaos, then there'll be some powerful monarch that will appear and then the monarch will kind of turn into like an oligarchy aristocracy as other powerful people kind of want a slice of the pie. And then it will, you know, eventually it'll become corrupt and the people will overthrow them. And then the cycle kind of starts all over again. But, you know, America and Rome were able to escape this cycle by having a nice balance between the rule of the one, the rule of the few and the rule of the many with a, you know, it's not a direct democracy, it's an indirect democracy. So it's been pretty stable compared to a lot of civilizations, 
but it does seem like there are some weak points that we're starting to see. Where would you put America on the Roman timeline? I mean, you know, obviously it's not the founding of Rome with Romulus and Remus. That would be more like, you know, maybe Christopher Columbus coming to America. And it wouldn't be, you know, the the revolution or, and the establishment of the republic. That would be more like, you know, our founding fathers. And it wouldn't be, you know, the wars of conquest. That would be more like World War One and World War Two. So where would you put the America on the Roman timeline? It's kind of hard to trace, like, where we would be in the development. I tend to place us probably in that time period between the Punic Wars and between uh, the fall of the Republic. Mm -hmm. If we're going to make a correlation between America and Rome, that's definitely one big point of comparison is like, you know, after Rome had already pretty much dominated the Italian peninsula, dominated Carthage, established the hegemony, you know, we kind of have already done that with America after winning World War One, World War Two, and the Cold War. Um, so we do seem to be somewhere between establishing a hegemony and the decline and fall of the Republic and the rise of the empire. It also seems like you could make some comparisons to the fall of the Western Roman Empire, which happened, you know, later, um, you know, which is more just like a general decline and sort of breaking into smaller city states and the beginning of late antiquity. <laughs> yeah, and I really hope we're not at that point. That, right, right, right. No, that's more like for a worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you know, to be clear, I mean, the idea of the Roman Empire disintegrating after, the, you know, the Western Roman Empire disintegrating, that's a, that's a, you know, an, an issue with historiography and reception. It's like mm -hmm. the people back then, of course, and maybe, I, you know, I'm preaching to the choir with you. I just want to make it clear that like the the people back then probably still saw a continuity of leadership, you know, even in right. even under, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, like Odoacer and like the mm -hmm. other Gothic Kings in the 500s AD, like they still had consuls. Like I know the, the, the philosopher, uh, Boethius was a, he was a consul. Like they still had the cursus honorum in name and the institutions still continued on. Um, and only now, and, you know, maybe going back to like the, the Renaissance onward, you know, do we consider that like the beginning of the Dark Ages, you know? So it's hard right. to it's hard to figure out where you are within uh, what the future will say you're in, you know? What right. Period. Yeah, it's not like there was one grand sweeping destruction of the Western Roman Empire. It was very gra It was more of a gradual transition. So maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, let's first start with the late Roman Republic because that seems like the mostly our focal point of comparison. So what are some similarities between what Rome was experiencing after having defeated Carthage and before the rise of Julius Caesar to America right now? I mean, some obvious things stick out to me and, and you can uh, uh, build on them. So rising economic inequality, a breakdown of most maiorem, which for non-Latin scholars, that's basically the customs and the norms of your civilization. So even if it's not written into law, there are certain customs like in America, the custom of sharing your tax returns or, you know, not having too much power and having sort of, you know, checks and balances and deferring to other branches of government. And, you know, a lot of these norms that we kind of take for granted 
the Romans also took them for granted and they started to decline. And what that decline led to was a lot of corruption where people in power pretty much did whatever they could to keep their power, even at the expense of the Republic. And, you know, that led to loss of faith in institutions. If you don't, if you believe your institutions to be corrupt, then you stop trusting in them and you stop really wanting to support them. And we saw a lot of that from the Roman people and it just kind of broke down into factions. Um, so I don't know if you have other thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I see a lot of parallels right now. And, I, and my understanding is that, you know, most my arm was a, a, a catch all for a lot of just general customs, you know, whether that's whether that's like the, the power of the Potter familias, you know, the power of the oldest male within the extended household, um, all the way down to things like how do we run like like what like what's the cursus honorum? What's the path of offices that a person yeah. can take? the standard, uh, you know, what's the age that you need to be for various things? I mean, so, uh, you know, I, I see some parallels now with the, you know, in, in our political and or at least how things are unfolding in the public forum now with how things were unfolding, uh, I think, in the early first century BC. So like you have a general breakdown of um, of deference to like custom, right? Or just how things are done, the unwritten rules, like you say. Um, and there's more of a focus on uh, like, like strong men, for lack of a better and like less loaded term, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, I mean, when you, you bring up the cursus honorum, and there used to be the case in America that if you wanted to be president, you, you know, you joined them, you went to a good college, then you joined the military for a little bit, then you became, uh, you know, a representative or a senator, and then you eventually became president. Now that's all thrown out the window. It's like you're better off being a celebrity uh, in order for your chances to be elected. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, the you're right. And, you know, I'll, I'll add to that, that, you know, there was there were similar um boundaries or restrictions placed on a lot of people, right? Before you could become, you know, before you could rise to a certain political class or, or political level, you had to be part of a political class. So that could be like, you had to be a member of a patrician family or a really wealthy uh, plebeian one. Um, you know, you had to be, of course, you had to be a man back then. Mm -hmm. Like that's, you know, there are a lot of assumptions. The landowner. Of course, a landowner, you have to be wealthy. Um, you have to be a man. Uh, you know, you couldn't be a freed person, for example. Like you had to be a citizen, what, cum suffragio, I think is the term, like with, with voting rights. Like you had mm -hmm. to be a full citizen. Um, something which was not extended to most of the Italian peninsula until I think after the social wars, I think. Right. Um, it's like the, the late second century. And, you know, I'm going to say a lot here. Matt and I were both classics undergrads. We are by no means experts on any of this. So I, I, I you know, I think we both stand open to correction by, yeah. by we're just people curious people who are trying to learn from history. Yeah, yeah. I think that's important to say before we get, you know, the entire faculty of wherever <laughs> denouncing us or something. You know. um, but yeah, I, you know, I see a lot of similarities with that time period where there's a sort of breakdown of what is normally expected within society within uh, politics, especially and within public affairs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and 
one of those is, yeah, just a breakdown of the unwritten kind of rules and customs that people are expected to, to follow and more uh, just growing cults of personality, people right. following an individual who has particular, I, I guess you could call it charisma. I mean, just draw mm-hmm. um, who is willing to just throw out those norms for the sake of power and, and to rewrite what those norms are going you know, into the future. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting correlations that people don't really talk about between Rome and America is this idea of like warring factions in society. And it's not as much a class divide in America or Rome as people tend to think. Oftentimes, it's more of like, like you said, a cult of personality, where, you know, in Rome, it's like you had these pa- uh, these patron client networks. So you would have really wealthy patrons who had their whole network of clients. And then that's where they would draw like their military power from. But then you'd have another family of patrons and they have their clients. And so a lot of the battles within Rome, like in the social wars, and a lot of them were sort of between these rival factions in society. And we see kind of a similar thing with America where you have this super divisive political atmosphere where you have like, you know, like, the poor, like, quote unquote, real American, like white Trump supporters who are pretty much the same social class as a lot of the like super liberal, like, you know, uh, whatever, you know, name your progressive candidate supporters. And, you know, it would make more sense for a lot of like, you know, the ni- the bottom 90 percent to all be on the same side. But we don't see that. We see these rival factions in society that are, you know, largely based on like, you know, the the powerful families, but also the ideologies that they purport to uh, be a part of. Yeah, and, and that's, I think, another salient comparison that needs to be to be made uh, is that is that the political class, I think, in the U.S. for a long time has largely been restricted to. I mean, originally it was you know white male landowners, right? Then they got rid of the landowning requirement. Then they got mm-hmm. rid of the the uh, white. Part right. I think that was the what, the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, you know, equal equal treatment of the law, uh, and then and then the male portion, right? And then mm-hmm. you could still argue that there's you know uh, there is still a political class in the United States of people, largely the upper quintile of people by assets or income, people who have the expendable income to be political, to engage in politics, to take off time from work, to go vote or to go knock on doors and canvas or to go donate uh, or to go to fundraisers or to do any of the stuff that we define as being political action, um, you know, that's not disruptive. I think the same thing was largely the case in Rome. I mean, it was just the range of activities was different. You had families that could run for office or had the means to run for office or had, like you said, um, well-developed enough patron client networks mm-hmm. that they, you know, at the morning, I forget what the, the term was. There was a, um, there was a uh, morning sort of ritual where patrons would receive clients and they would, uh, hand out a thing called a sportula, like a little basket mm. that would be kind of like, I don't know, filled with bread or some shit. Right. And, <laughs> You Which know, is the, like the equivalent of Republicans giving tax breaks and Democrats giving handouts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or just like, you know, having having a 
political office person just have like a constituent coffee where you just you show up, you get a shitty donut, you you know <laughs> you drink a watered down coffee, and you talk with the person. Um, but this is all to say that the that you know there's a a large similarity between how the politics was done. It was mostly restricted to you know wealthy people, and there were obviously other you know, identity dimensions there that were, you know, they're different in the U.S. in terms of who's shut out and who's allowed access. And and the same in Rome, I think. Um, I think a common thing there is the, the wealthy generally control the, the political process. Right. Uh, and, and so it's largely the political developments, as we see it, are largely conflicts between different networks of wealthy people. So yeah. like, yeah, and, you know, it's, you, you have, you have, and this is skipping ahead a little bit, but think about Julius Caesar representing the, the populist party, the populares. Right. I was just going to bring that up. There's like the populare and the optimate are a really interesting corollary to what's happening right now. Because like, you know, you've got your populist like Julius Caesar. And before Julius Caesar, you had the Gracchi brothers who were famous for giving out the grain dole, which all the plebs loved because now they didn't have to worry about starving. <laughs> And that was super popular. And then you have the optimate, which are more like, you know, the noble elites. You know, this would be like Nancy Pelosi and like, you know, people like that. And it seems like one trend that I've noticed is that in Rome, you had actual authentic populists who really wanted what was best for the people. And I would put like Bernie in that camp, like actually an authentic populist. But then later on, you have people, you know, like, uh, like, like, uh, you know, like Julius Caesar and like, um, you know, other characters like Sulla to an extent and Gaius Marius to an extent. And these figures really took the populare template and used it in a more manipulative manner where they would find ways to use the populace to get their political ends. But they didn't really care like what happened to the populare. It was more like a puppet master. And I definitely notice that right now with, you know, what's going on with, uh, you know, Trump as a populist and, um, you know, who knows what will come after Trump, but it's worrying. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to note, you know, for listeners who are less familiar with Roman history that, that you know, Julius Caesar was part of the populist faction of Roman elites, but he was still a Roman elite. Right. Like, like Trump you know, is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he came from a poor family that was still patrician, still noble, the, the, uh, what the Julie the nephew of Gaius Marius, wasn't he? I think, yeah, by marriage maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, this family, the Julie descended from the, the legendary son of Aeneas, uh, Eulus, who, right. uh, and so you know, they can Aeneas... trace their ancestry all the way back to Zeus. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, it, you know, so it's not like the, you know, it's not like this guy's salt of the earth, you know, a freed coming up. Um, and I, I see a lot of parallels with our political system today where there are people, I think, largely the Democratic Party that represents like a lot of regular people's needs. But you still in that Democratic Party have a have an elite. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think then the, the Republican Party kind of speaks for itself, to be honest, you know, mm-hmm. the modern day one. Like if you, if you need a, a modern corollary, it would be like the Bush family. They're they're optimates, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. old school, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, you know, going back. They, they can trace their ancestry back to, uh, you know, back to the, the founding or sometime close. 
um, you know, the, the founding of what we consider the the United States in continuity, you know, going back to, to Jamestown or to Plymouth or uh, I don't know. What's another settlement? <laughs> <I don't laughs> uh, 1776, maybe. Yeah. And, and that's that, that's another good example. FDR. The, the Roosevelt family, an old Dutch family in New York, and, you know, the old Dutch New York families extend back to when New York was a Dutch colony, and they retained enormous political power and significance, and FDR and, and to a lesser extent, Teddy Roosevelt were both also pretty populist. I mean, they did mm. things for the benefit of most people rather than, you know, just a, a wealthy political class. Right. Yeah, it does seem like we were very much on the Optimate train with all the Bushes and the Clintons. And then people like broke away and we got like, you know, a populist who really seemed like wanted what was best for the people, which was Obama, you know, even if maybe he didn't execute perfectly. And, you know, then you have a populist that's more of a manipulator in chief, um, which sometimes he's able to manipulate to get good outcomes if it also overlaps with what's a good outcome for himself personally which is very common to what, you know, the Roman emperors would do. They ha had this kind of feeling, or even not empire emperors, but even some of the late rulers in the Republic felt like what was best for me is what's best for Rome. And so you kind of have that breakdown of a distinguish, distinguishment between the two. Um, the other interesting parallel I've noticed is with the devaluation of the currency. So there's this one quote where Rome went from an uh, Rome went from a, a civilization of gold to a civilization of iron and rust, and a lot of that was because they didn't keep good tabs, uh, you know, over time on you know the real quality of the currency. So anyone who had good quality coins would basically hoard it because they knew it was good quality. So the coins in circulation tended to be lower quality. And over time, you know, that just led to a general distrust of, you know, doing business with different people. And it kind of slowed the economy down. And especially since, you know, the coronavirus and the current economic crisis, it seems like a lot of people are spending less. They're holding their money tighter. And at the same time, you know, the Fed is seriously devaluing the currency, not just in America, but around the world by essentially creating, you know, so much new money out of thin air. So that's another interesting parallel. Yeah, I think it's a parallel, you know, and I think there's a distinction there. But the, but the first, you know, I'll start with the distinction is that I think our money systems are just completely different. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, Rome's and I think pretty much I mean, what, up until we got rid of the gold standard in like 72, mm -hmm. uh, you know, money systems have been based off of like specie or based off of like hard currency, something that's backed, you know, a, a dollar is backed by gold. Um, and so, you know, uh, uh, inflation back then might have taken the the form of issuing a coin that you would plate with gold, but it would really be like copper or some other shitty metal on the inside. Mm -hmm. The copper is valuable, too. Um but, uh, you know, and I think the difference now is, is that with with the dollar, it's like the dollar retains its power because of the demand for it, because so much right. exchange is done in it. So as long as there's a taxable base of people who who have to pay taxes in the dollar, mm -hmm. you know, 
anyone in the U.S., then there will be demand for it. And as long as there's demand for U.S. Treasury bonds, the government can still spend. And as long as they keep up with debt payments, then there's still uh, there's still validation of its worth because it will be paid back. And so then it's seen as a safe bet. So people will then buy more and, there, and there's more demand for it. So, you know, I think that's that's the huge distinction. Right. Mm -hmm. But uh, the parallel is, yeah, I mean, if there is distrust of the monetary system on the whole and if there's distrust in the economy and how it is laid out, then, yeah, you do have you know, deflation or you do have economic slowdown. You do have crunch where people are like, why would I spend my really good gold coins and potentially mm -hmm. get shit? And, and for other people, they might think like, why would I buy a TV that's going to cost less in like a week when I could just hold on to this dollar that is going to retain, you know, value for a while. Um, yeah. Even or may gain value, you know, Right. No, yeah, you're totally right. I mean, the monetary system is way different. And, you know, currently 60% of all international transactions are made with the dollar. And a lot of countries use that as sort of their backup because their currency is less stable than the dollar. So to a large extent, when America creates money and buys assets, American assets, we're kind of making the rest of the world pay for it. So it's not as bad for America as it is for you know, you know, X, Y or Z country that uses the dollar as their their backed uh, currency. But it does raise the question of if this trend keeps continuing, will there be some schism in the global financial market where, you know, I mean, we can get more into China. But, you know, imagine China comes out with their own cryptocurrency state backed and imagine they just they just ban like any transactions with the dollar and they use their hegemony to get other countries onto their standard. And you could then see a serious devaluation of the US dollar, um, even even for Americans who, you know, still would have to pay their taxes in dollars. Yeah, and I think it's it's a huge distinction between the, if we want to call it like Pax Americana, the American empire or whatever, and the Roman empire is that the Roman empire is was one where power was exerted through the military. Uh, versus, and, and we certainly exert power using our military too, but more often it's more just to ensure that our financial control isn't, uh, you know, uh, undone or abused or anything. Mm -hmm. So, so our ability to project force is really just to, you know, around the world, either through carrier groups or through military bases in a bunch of different countries is really just to make sure that, uh, you know, are it's really to guarantee commerce right like that's what the navy does they protect trade on the high seas and um and and so then we just use you know i mean this is verging into like theories on neo-colonialism and things like that which is that is that american or european or whatever whatever you want to call it hegemonic uh, or companies that are part of the global hegemony uh exert power through uh you know commerce and then and then that's just backed up by American military, NATO and, and other militaries. So, right. I mean, you know, there's, yeah. Yeah, you point out some good differences and maybe let's get into that now of what are the key differences between Rome and America and that'll help lay the groundwork for what's going to happen in the future. So, you know, one big difference we've already touched on, which is that there is a rising rival superpower that is challenging America's Hegen hegemonic dominance. 
whereas there wasn't really one in the late Republic. It was more like all of these, you know, barbarian tribes, but they didn't really have a challenger in the same way that we do. And this leads to another example and learning from ancient history, which is known as Thucydides' trap, which is that anytime you have a, an overextended existing superpower that is challenged by a rising superpower, I think it was 12 out of the last 15 times that's happened in history, it has led to armed conflict. So, you know, the, the likelihood of that happening, okay, here, here, I have the exact numbers. So in the last 500 years, there have been 16 cases in which a rising power threatened to displace a ruling power and 12 of the 16 ended in war. And this goes back to, you know, the original quote is, it was the rise of Athens and the fear that this instilled in Sparta that made war inevitable. And that's from the historian Thucydides. So I wa I'm curious if you, to hear your thoughts on, is it inevitable that China will you know, surpass the U.S.? And if so, what would that look like? like? I mean, we have other differences now, too, like we have nuclear bombs now, so there's mutually assured destruction. But there's also cyber war, which could potentially get rid of mutually assured destruction. So I'm curious, like, if you think, you know, what you think is going to happen with the modern Thucydides trap. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's that's huge. Um, I think that with nuclear weapons and, you know, this isn't any new kind of idea or anything, not even close, is that we are past the point where we are going to have full on wars of like territorial aggression or or expansion or, you know, a traditional hot war like that's going to engulf the world. I mean, I really hope I really hope we're done with that yeah. as a planet. Uh, so I think it's largely going to come down to empires are going to uh, or superpowers are going to struggle against one another. And there I mean, it will be economic warfare. And it will be a constant competition to extract resources from uh, those interests or, or entities, or nations that which aren't aligned with either of them. And, and it will be a constant struggle between whichever superpowers are on the stage to, um, to exert their influence, but just through the, through their economies. Mm -hmm. uh, and then through that, you know, there's, there's cultural empire. So like the idea that, that Hollywood is able to export its movies because we have trade deals with a number of countries and there are people in those countries who like to eat Coke and, or I'm sorry, drink Coke and eat popcorn while watching those movies, you know, like, mm -hmm. like that idea that, that, um, that that's an occurrence. Who knows in the future, it could be that we're watching movies from Bollywood and we're eating, mm -hmm. you know, and we're drinking a, 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 a drink, which is popular more in India and, and, eating Indian food while watching it. Or, uh, I mean, you know, you could extend the same to, to China as well. Um, yeah. There's also the information war aspect of it about what sort of ideas are allowed to flourish and what ideas are sort of prevented by the great Chinese firewall or any other country that limits the information its citizens can access. So, yeah, I agree. It's likely not going to be a hot war. Like, I don't think we're going to go, you know, I don't think China's going to like, you know, take over San Francisco or something. <laughs> but it could very well be that they dominate 
so much economically, culturally, and and uh, on an information level, that you know it's they become the dominant power, and that become you know that has a far-reaching impact on all sorts of countries. You know, to a large extent, America is the stabilizing force right now. So a lot of countries are kind of similar to America in how they operate, especially in the West. But we could see a similar, we could see something quite different in the future, where a lot of countries use the China model, and they have the you know authoritarianism in a box where they can control whatever information they want. They've got you know deals with China, so they can make sure they stay in power. And we could just live in a world where there's far less access to free-flowing information. Sure. And and what if you know Chinese GDP gets to a point where it just is the it's the center of commerce for the world. Like companies know that they just they have to be based in China if they want to get any traction. And then because of that, uh, you know, China will set norms for what is expected of those companies. And who knows what could go away? I mean, things yeah. that we take for granted, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, all of that um, will just not really exist because companies kind of they still have to play ball. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, China could eventually export particular facets of its culture, both, both, I mean, positive and negative. And I'm talking about the government here, not the Chinese people, right, right. Nation, you know, to, to be clear, um, could export, uh, you know, positive and, and negative aspects. I tend to focus on the negative because I'm like a civil liberties kind of nut. I like the idea of being able to speak freely and not have the government, you know, Right, chase me down right. or say um but i think largely our norms will be you know dictated by who has the economic power and it seems like that's in the 21st century is probably going to be china and potentially india yeah yeah it's interesting that you bring up free speech because i'm with you that to me that's one of the most important rights it's like really like a north star value for america or at least it, it should continue to be but I'm worried that, you know, I saw this tweet from Paul Graham the other day, and he talked about how in any civilization, there's four levels of free speech. The first level is you can say whatever you want, as long as you're not, you know, yelling fire in a crowded theater and hurting people. Level two is where there are some things that are true that you are not allowed to say culturally. And all civilizations have some of that. Like if you go to Japan, it's not polite to talk about your work. Like there are just certain things you, you really shouldn't say. Level three is where you're only allowed to have one opinion on a certain issue. And it's not okay to have another opinion on that issue. And we're kind of seeing that in America right now a little bit um, with the cancel culture and everything. And then the fourth level is where you have to say that opinion. Staying quiet is not acceptable. And we're and like that would be, you know, the famous picture from Nazi Germany where everyone's saluting except that one guy who doesn't salute. And like that guy. Oh, it's a it's such a powerful picture because there's just this sea of people that are all making this salute. But one guy isn't in defiance. And like, you know, that guy probably ended up getting a visit from the secret police. So I'm, I'm worried that we're moving up that ladder in America. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's all you always have to be vigilant against <clears throat> government and, you know, social repression of people's ability to express an idea, you know, provided it's not like 
causing imminent danger to someone. Like, I don't think you should be able to threaten someone, like, directly, you know. Mm -hmm. Hey, attack that person, like, right over there. Um, you know, that's obviously bad. I think we're probably still on that second stage where it's, like, culturally, mm -hmm. there's just certain things you don't talk about, like, in polite conversation. You know, when I meet a new person, I'm not going to be like, so, what's your religion? And what do right. you think about religion? Like, <laughs> like, people, you know, people will give you a weird look and and... And yeah, I mean, you know, there's certain, you know, the, yes, there is like a, you know, a rising, I think, um, movement to make sure that people aren't saying just grossly offensive things or something like that. But, but, you know, I'm, I still think we're probably squarely within that second category, mm -hmm. but it's always important to, to, you know, reemphasize like, yes, we need free discussion of ideas. Yes. Even if you find some of them to be offensive, you need to just it's it's on us to protect that right to keep reasserting why those people who are saying something that's offensive or wrong why they are wrong right that that's right. The, that's the price that we pay for the freedom is that when you see someone saying something wrong or in unjust or something that's just grossly offensive it is on everyone to go no you're an idiot this is why even if it is tiring to explain this is why mm -hmm. And maybe some people will shrink back from that because they're simply tired of having to explain that. And that's perfectly reasonable. It's up to it's up to people who are ardent in their defense of our civil liberties to constantly be advocating for them yeah. um, and constantly push back on offensive or ridiculous ideas, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, I guess for me, I, I have a lot of confidence that if we allow free information to flow, the truth will prevail, especially, you know, maybe not for older people who are from a, you know, different era that they're not used to this type of, you know, information. But, but they're not to, reconsidering whether right. they're wrong. Yeah. I but mean, for young people, like when I see, you know, the Gen Z and, you know, younger people, they're so savvy when it comes to separating, you know, bullshit from actual facts that I, I just feel confident that if we allow the freedom of speech to continue, it will lead to the right place, even if there's a lot of you know divisiveness and offensive remarks from either side. But if we start to limit what the future generations are able to access, just like how if you're a kid growing up in China, you literally can't search for Tiananmen Square and see any results. Like that's what really worries me more than like, you know, any offensiveness or anything like that. Yeah. And, and I, I just want to clarify, too, that like people that are unfortunately, I think the people that some people who defend free speech, like use it just to be edgelords. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. they just yeah. want like the freedom to say like some horribly offensive thing or an offensive joke. And it's like, OK, fine. I'm not going to like I'm not going to censor you. You're just being a dick. Yeah, <laughs> you're being yeah. a jackass. And like you're you're appropriating a, what should be a sacred right is someone's ability to communicate an idea, even if it is offensive, but you're doing it just to like needle people. Like, yeah, okay. we need good faith debates. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the weaponizing of, you know, uh, uh, free speech to, you know, hiding behind that as a sacred value just to say, and just like be a troll. It's like, okay, like, come mm. on. Um, so ancient yeah. Rome, how is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, so there's, well, we're talking about the differences now, so it makes sense that we're saying some things that are not applicable to Rome. But it does seem like the other big difference is that we have the technology that we have now. 
So, you know, maybe this is less relevant for the late Republic, but for the late Western Empire, part of why it collapsed was because it got so hard to manage all of the territories. You know, during the time of Emperor Trajan, that was the peak of the Roman Empire. It was extended yeah. really far. And Trajan was a master of managing the boring logistics of making sure everyone was doing what they're supposed to. Everyone had the supplies. All the communication lines were up. And then you had a series of emperors who were, you know, just like childish and only cared about themselves and were narcissists and really weren't good at actually managing. Yeah. And, you know, so that's a big difference, I think, between what the challenges that the late Western Roman Empire faced and the challenges America faced is that we now have data science and computing and the ability to process so much information that it gives me some hope that even if society collapsed tomorrow, we would be able to rebuild it much more quickly with technology and maybe on the blockchain. And, you know, there are some interesting technologies that could create an even better system than what we have right now. And still, uh, to, to just veer back to similarity, and still our government and or at least our institutions are still largely hierarchical and are similar to, to those Roman institutions, whether it's like religion, like everything stemming from the Pontifex Maximus, the chief priest, or, uh, or like an emperor, you know, or a princeps, like a, a first citizen, like a first among equals, mm -hmm. like it's still, even if we had all of those administrative tools, data science, blockchain, all of that, it would still, the decisions would still come down to like at the top, one person, right. or at least a chain of people, you know, like, like a pyramid and, you know, the, the people at the top of that pyramid are still making the decisions. So we're still susceptible to the same problems, which is like you said, you know, the emperors that had just, just completely gave up on any responsibility and just wanted to like have Nero a working and Caligula and, and yeah. And just like dance around and do whatever, uh, and have fun. I mean, it sounds like a lot of fun, but, uh, but, uh, like that one, when we were in learning about Caligula, he literally had this, you know, someone said like, you know, he's going to be such a great emperor that he's going to ride his horse across the, across oh, yeah, the river. Yeah. And so they literally put all these ships across the river just so he could ride his horse across. And we just it was, do it. It was a bay. It oh, was like bay. a bay ocean. It yeah, like, like just these ridiculously <laughs> expensive things just to boost the emperor's ego. Yeah, I mean, we, I think we can kind of see some modern parallel. Like we like like remember what was it like last year? Uh, Trump wanted to have like a uh, like a military parade in DC. Oh, yeah. It's like we don't do that. <laughs> like what are, you, what are you talking about like you know um but you know that's another similarity i see is like an administrative state like we have a pretty extensive centralized bureaucracy and you know that can be good and bad if it's administered well it can be very good if you have an effective administrator at the top who's like willing to defer to experts and willing to understand where those experts are right where they're wrong where all of those experts fit into the field, uh, you know, of, of just where they fit into society, right? Like, mm -hmm. like you would think like, okay, for like, okay, for like a pandemic, like maybe I, maybe I should like listen to the, I'll listen to the doctors a little bit more. Maybe than I, I should read the report that the previous administration, administration painstakingly prepared for me. <laughs> yeah. Of course. And it's like, okay, well, like, what are you doing? Um, but, you know, so that's great. But then if you also have a bad person at the top 
of an extensive administrative state that needs direction. If that person just isn't providing direction, then well, shit. Right. <laughs> no, that's, that's probably my biggest concern as it relates to Trump is not what Trump actually does himself, but how that affects the entire rest of government. Because it's similar to Rome, where you used to have these people that were loyal to Rome and to Mos Maiorum and to all the values that Rome stood for. But then towards the end of the late Republic, people stopped caring about that and they started only caring about what was good for them and whoever their patron was, whether it's Julius Caesar or you know whoever else. And it, you know that's when you have sort of a breakdown of the fundamental values of the civilization. So maybe maybe it's good now. I mean, unless you have any final thoughts, maybe we get into the future scenarios and then we can really talk about where is this all going to lead and what lessons can we learn from Rome so that we avoid the worst case scenario. Let's get into the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. So using Rome as a template and the different outcomes that occurred during Rome, what would you say is the worst outcome for America similar to one of the outcomes from Rome? I would say like U.S. balkanization would be pretty bad if let's just assume our entire all of our cultural cultural influence just went away. All of our economic influence got splintered. Um, and if the U.S. itself, especially the contiguous U.S., became uh, just like broken into regions that were autonomous, like autonomous in a real sense, not just mm -hmm. like, you know, like different militaries kind of sense, like different treaties, like and there was maybe a shared idea of America. Like, I, I guess I'm harking, you know, I'm, I'm I'm looking back to what happened at the end of the Roman Empire, Western yeah. Roman Empire is like. Yeah, you had the you had the Bishop of Rome, you had the Pope, and he kind of like he was the cultural, maybe spiritual center, but uh, everything was broken up. The Lombards in Italy, the Franks in France, and you know Germany, and and the Visigoths and the Vandals. You know they all had their own chunks and pieces, and they might have been tied together by a shared history and spirituality, perhaps, but like politically, they were just they were separate entities, and that would be probably the worst outcome for the U.S. is if all of our influence and ability to project around the world militarily, economically, culturally just faded away. And then you had like, you know, the Northeast Corridor, like right. D.C., the Maine, you know, the Southeast. Texas would, of course, be its own country. It would be seven flags now. Not six <laughs> flags. Um, yeah, California would probably be its own. Of course, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, California already brags about being its own thing <laughs> all the time. We're the fifth largest economy in the world. Blah blah. Right. blah. Uh, what was it? Governor Newsom called you guys. He he's called like, us a nation state. <laughs> I love that. I mean, like, I don't love it because it means the decline <laughs> of America is near. But <laughs> as a Californian, I, I have some pride. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I did. He would like sit on a throne that would like be a stuffed bear. Right. <laughs> He'd wear like a bearskin hat. I don't know. Yeah. But you could see how that happens. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of someone in the late Western Empire where you have Rome that's been declining for a while and their military has gotten less and less powerful as far as its influence. And you're in some city state that has pretty good defenses. Like you have your own 
sort of military, you've got your own fortifications. And at a certain point, you just think, why am I going to keep sending my tax dollars and my citizens, you know, to go fight for, for Rome when Rome isn't really giving me anything? I'm just going to start worrying about myself and like my small, you know, my group of, of uh, you know, fellow comrades. And so you have these little city states that sort of break off and they have their own power. And you could see a similar thing happen if America gets to a certain point where, just like you said, like northeastern states could break off texas could break off california could break off um and that yeah that's so that's one of my worst case scenarios is america following the path of the end of the western roman empire the other path that seems possible to me is similar to how at the end of the roman republic where you transition to an authoritarian system Mm -hmm. and i don't think that we would actually have a dictator of America. I think there's there's just too much baggage for that to actually play to the public. But I could imagine a situation where we have something like Russia, where we still have elections, but they're we don't they're not really fair elections. Like, you know, you have Trump and then you've got like Pence as the next person and then you've got Ivanka and then you know it's a, so they're all kind of just a facade for what's what's who's really controlling. And by the way, I'm not saying that it's going to be the Trump family. I think there are some good indicators that they are not trying to be dictators. You know, for instance, they held back and let the states use a lot of the state's control in the coronavirus, mostly because it just seems like Trump was kind of lazy and didn't want to have the burden of of managing that. There's Uh, just no there's no governmental mechanism for the federal government to do. From what I understand, and I'm not a lawyer or anything, but like what would a national emergency like that entail? Like I know governors can invoke states of emergency and can, you know, have extraordinary powers from that. But like, does the president have that? Like, can he just, you know, I don't know. Um, Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I feel like he could have done all the bargaining for, you know, PPE and masks rather than the states all fighting among themselves. And he could have made a declaration that everyone needs to wear masks, even if it's not enforceable. I think setting some guidelines on the federal level do have an impact to the states and then governors kind of know what they're supposed to do. Um, But, you know, like I was saying, I don't know. I'm not saying Trump is going to be Julius Caesar and actually become a dictator. And when you look at the late republic, there are periods of recovery where things start to get a little bit better. But the overall trend is decline. So maybe it takes, you know, 25 or 50 years for us to reach that sort of level of authoritarianism where there's like puppet elections. But it does seem to me like that's one of the worst case scenarios. The other one being the one you mentioned where there's sort of a breakup of the U.S. Yeah. And I guess I started off really drastic, but here's maybe a more realistic like, uh, you know, and this isn't going to be my likely scenario. This is just a a more realistic negative would be. you know, Trump happened and then we go forward and the current body politic acknowledges that Trump existed and that like he was able to do what he did. He was able to get elected kind of like how the Roman public and especially the political class once Sulla came into Rome and just killed a shit ton of people, his Mm -hmm. prescriptions. I mean, that left such a deep mark on Romans and then they now understood like, Oh yeah. Like if you don't like how the Republic's working, you can just brick it. <laughs> like you can just mm-hmm. throw a TV and break it and we get a different TV. And so, you know, he, 
you know, Sulla's, Sulla's it's a template for future opportunists. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's sort of what I worry about is that as someone who disagrees with, you know, president Trump's political program, like I think a lot of people do, uh, you know, at the very least he's ineffective, like he's, right, he's right. bumbling and, but he does set the stage for someone who could be actually effective or who knows how to make the right political signals and who knows how to appeal to the right things and, and say the yeah, right like thing. think if we had a Putin in America, like someone super savvy, knows how to play the game really well, like really has the ambition to fully control the country. We haven't had that with Trump. We could have that in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could have someone who's just, you know, who is a much more effective right wing leader who then could easily bring about authoritarianism. Right. Or a left or a left wing leader, potentially. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I'm open to all. <laughs> I'm open to all. I'm, I'm a, you know, thoroughly a cynic. I'm open to all. An equal opportunity, authoritarian. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think in this instance, Trump is is right wing. And so there's more precedence for a right wing right leader. Right. Um, but then again, I mean, who know, I, you know, I can't predict the future. Right. <laughs> yeah. The, a left wing uh, devolution would be more like the French Revolution, where you've got the people rising up and chopping off all the rich people's heads with the guillotine. But maybe we'll save that for another episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, God. yeah that's, that's worthy of its own thing. Yeah. Well, let's switch it up and talk about the best case scenario. So what is the best case scenario for the future of America as it relates to Roman history? Best case scenario. I think it's that we recognize the weaknesses in our institutions and that we acknowledge what, you know, societies, governments, but societies in general only exert authority or have legitimacy if people agree by convention. And if enough people say, hey, this is bullshit, this isn't working for me, then it crumbles. And so my hope is that our institutions are flexible enough to adapt and to uh, actively reflect the will of the people. Like everyday people in the U.S. understand that we live in a representative democracy, we live in a republic, Are the public's will should be expressed in policy and that it's we do it largely by a majority, except for some things we require supermajority. And if that doesn't happen, and if that breaks down, if public opinion is one way and our institutions are completely the opposite, then people lose faith. So what we need to do is those institutions to maintain legitimacy need to accurately reflect the will of people. And that might mean change. I mean, it might mean change that feels more drastic than what a lot of people might be comfortable with. But if there's a majority of people, and I think a healthy majority of people, that say like, hey, we need X, Y, Z to to live or to, to buy in, to actually view this as legitimate and fair, um, then, you know, those institutions need to be flexible. Um, yeah. I think, you know, that would be a positive. How that, there, it's too wide of a topic too broad of a to wide of a topic too broad of a topic to uh to kind of broach like how those institutions need to change that in and of itself is like its own right. podcast. um but yeah my hope is that 
during this time of great social disruption, people really reflect on what what's their role in a collective and what does the collective owe the individual and what does the individual owe a collective and what what are you know we need to renew the promises that uh, that you know have made our society functioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I, I I I'm right on the same page. I think we need to restore confidence in the institutions and. We also need to restore some balance and and equality among our people. You know, when we look forward to how technology is changing and automation and globalization, it's really hard for a lot of people to make a living. Similar to how after the Punic Wars, it was really hard for the average Roman to make a living when he's constantly being sent off to war. When he's off at war, his land goes to shit. He comes back and, you know, then there's a new political class and now he's the enemy. And it's like, you know, it was really hard for the Roman, similar to how it's really hard for the average American now, especially after coronavirus. So in my best case scenario, I think we pass laws similar to what the Gracchi brothers were trying to pass. And if the Gracchi brothers had been received well, because the Republic was still very strong in their time, maybe that would have prevented the fall of the Republic in later years. So the Gracchi brothers passed the grain dole so that if you're a peasant, you at least know you're not going to starve. We should pass something similar, which would be some form of UBI, where you know, at the very least, you're not going to starve. You know, you can feed your family. And hopefully that would also include things like Medicare for all and some, you know, education for all as well. Yeah, I mean... or like a like a second bill of rights, right? A second like, bill of rights, exactly. Like, like FDR describes, like the right to housing, the right to healthcare. I, you know, I don't actually know what, what was on it. I don't have it in front of me. Um, <laughs> I'm a fraud, folks. Um, but uh, no, but I mean something like that, right? Like exactly. If, if you're in the U.S., you you should not die from from uh, from not being able to receive medical care. Like right. that's you shouldn't absurd. go bankrupt for getting cancer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, of course. You shouldn't, like, if you do find yourself houseless, if you're in a position of homelessness, like, you should be able to, there should be systems and institutions in place that are effective and that are not necessarily just private. Mm-hmm. Like, the public can, you know, we have enough housing stock, <laughs> like, to, to solve homelessness. Right. What I understand policy wise, the easiest way to solve homelessness is to provide services within a, a, a like a home <laughs> like, yeah, like give people, give people homes <laughs> like, right, right. so uh yeah no i agree with you is you know yeah so together. i would i would say the economic piece is one of the fundamental things we'll have to fix socioeconomics the yeah. other fundamental piece is how our campaigns and elections are conducted and specifically i think the financing has a lot of work to be done And in a previous episode, we talked about this concept of democracy vouchers, where rather than it being entrenched interests that to a large extent get to decide who are the candidates, we could give every American citizen a democracy voucher for 25 bucks or 50 bucks, and they get X amount of vouchers, and then they decide which candidates they want to donate money to, and you don't allow any other outside fundraising. So it becomes part of the democratic process, and you get the entrenched interests out of the financing piece. And that way, when you're elected, you don't have all of these IOUs to the people that gave you money. Your only IOUs are to your constituents. 
Yeah, I mean, you could even have like a system of public financing where it's limited and and uh, you know that that could resolve a lot of the issues too. And I think in terms of buy-in too, you know, society and not just government, but society, because we've largely been talking about government and what it can do using public heft, you know, its its authority to solve issues like healthcare and and homelessness and all of that. Um, but you know, societally too, people need to have a buy-in to the culture. So like, you know, people of different identities, whether that's you know what what whatever dimensions you want to. Um, Based that on whether it's like, uh, you know, on, on the racial dimension or the gender or sexual identity dimension or uh, or, you know, ability status. And I guarantee I am missing, you know, hundreds of dimensions, I'm sure. But you need to give people a reason to be able to buy into society and to feel like they're represented. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, that's so that's another change I think that needs to happen is as unpopular as it might be we need to rework the electoral college so it's more in line with the population. Yeah. It doesn't have to be exactly in line with it, but it is absurd that the city of Los Angeles, I forget the exact number, but there's something like 42 states that have a lower population than the city of Los Angeles. So when you consider that you know, Los Angeles and, and you know, California and other major cities have such a small voice relative to the rest of the country, it, it makes a lopsided uh, effect on, on policy. And it leads to these situations where it's a lot easier to game the election because you can just cater to specific states and, you know, swing states and you can get the right people in power in places like, you know, Iowa and, and wherever. Um, so, yeah, yeah. that's another yeah. area that concerns me. Entirely. Yeah. And I mean, you know, again, that, like that's a government thing. And I think about like the, the social institutions, like social institutions should be accepting of all people and be willing to bring in, uh, you know, diverse groups of people, diverse literally on any dimension. Um, and so, you know, if people if if those social institutions, I'm thinking like civic society right now, just like like mm. private groups, you know, if those don't if they aren't open to people and i mean any group if they aren't open or inclusive then like yeah people are just gonna not the people that are being shut out are gonna be like well fuck this like why mm-hmm. would i think that you're worth shit like well like here's an example like right i think it was 2015 it was like uh there was the hashtag you know oscars so white mm-hmm. right and it's like if you want the oscars to be a source of authority on what a good movie is if you are shutting out particular people or not proportionally representing them in in art and culture then of course people you know you either you either accept people in to maintain your legitimacy but if you don't then like yeah you lose legitimacy and the people that are excluded will just say fuck this like why would i watch mm-hmm. the Oscars? i have no chance of you know well so along those lines what are your thoughts on if we move to a more direct democracy which hasn't really been possible until recently where now it does seem feasible that whenever there's an important piece of legislation you know you could have every american with a smartphone and a double encrypted you know blockchain enabled sort of app where they vote on policies directly do you think that's ever something that could work or maybe should should be tried in america or is an indirect democracy still the the best way yeah i mean both sides are going to have 
there, there's there's going to be flaws with both elements. So like d- direct democracy, great. I mean, yeah, everyone should have a voice. Um, but then like what things are going to be subject to that? Like, mm-hmm. like, is there like, is a regulation on like how a bank lends to a, like a secondary lender? Right. Like, some, like some policies you just want experts making yeah, that decision. Like most, yeah. Most people don't give a shit about farmer Mac or Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or like any, like they don't, and, and they don't have the knowledge to, I mean, like it, it's just too, it's too in the weeds. So yeah, you'd have to figure out what's really important. Um, I think, you know, the idea of like national referenda would be kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, that brings into, you know, that, that brings into question, like how the voting is done and all of the mechanics of it. But this is all to say that we could largely avoid collapse or at least disintegration as a society and a government or an empire or whatever you want to describe us as, uh, you know, the United States as if there is renewed legitimacy uh, or at least, you know, people people have buy in right. citizens, American residents or literally people who aren't part of the United States, but are directly affected by the United States actions. So like members of NATO or our trade partners or even people in countries that have like very little relation to the U.S., they need to be able to say, yeah, the yeah, the U.S. is like a fair dealer. Like they're good. Right. Like I would rather them than, you know, life is better under their hegemony than it is under, you know, Russian hegemony or something like that. Like you have to make things good for the most amount of pe- for the greatest amount of people, you know, if you want. Yeah. If you want to see. I know it's it's wild now that even like having an American flag outside your house is seen as like a Republican symbol even though that's literally our nation's flag. So there's this weird sort of self-hating trend where a lot of people, especially progressives, like kind of hate America. And, you know, it's there are a lot of problems that need to be solved. But I think you're totally right, like restoring trust in the institutions and restoring our reputation around the world and really getting back to our core values. That's what's going to allow America to survive and thrive you know, far into the future. Well, yeah, and I think that we we could. It's just going to take brutal honesty on our part, on the part of the United States to, and we are fairly honest about a lot of the things we've done. I mean, go into you know, I think in the in the United States, you're pretty much free to talk about how the CIA was uh, aided a lot of right wing groups in South America to overthrow democratically elected left wing governments, mm-hmm. and I can say that freely. I can walk all around. Right. My, I can say that and talk about it and I can talk about it on this podcast without fear of government reprisal. Uh, Maybe not necessarily so in other countries, you know. Yeah, and that's huge. I mean, to be able to say whatever you want and not get, not disappear the next day is huge. But yeah, and I guess what I'm trying to say is through that, you know, it's, I, through that, I think it's better to, there's going to be, there's a lot of reconciliation, you know, that needs to be done, like, we, you know, I, I don't know how, what form that takes, but giving people a square deal, at least in the U.S. and then, you know, around the world and atoning, you know, for the bad things that the country's done, but also, the, you know, highlighting the good things. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not entirely bad. And then earning the trust, again, of so many countries that might be skeptical and saying, hey, listen, we are the better option here compared to other superpowers. Right. Uh, 
you know, and just making it clear that you're going to get a square deal with us. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to rip and run or fuck you over, you know, and do all that. Yeah, I'm with you. Well, let's bring it home with the most likely scenario. So I tremble to ask, but what do you think is the most likely scenario for the future of America, considering the future that Rome has experienced? Most likely scenario. I think what's going to be likely to happen, I'm going to start with government and then expand other, you know, into, into other realms is with government, we've already seen now that you can get someone, we have an extensive administrative state that can act on its own and really can only be challenged by like, you know, you can pass a law to restrict it, that works, but ultimately it can really only be restrained by the judiciary and the judiciary's ability to activate agents who have purportedly a monopoly on violence, right? Like the ability of the judiciary to be like, no, send a sheriff to like go stop that thing from happening. You know, that's, Mm -hmm. um, we've seen now that like that administrative state exists. It has extraordinary power and it's susceptible to, uh, corruption. If you have someone at the very top of it, who's mismanaging it egregiously. And I'm not saying that everyone before Trump was a great manager, not by any means, there's a question of whether you can even manage something that is that large, but but we've seen that it can be aggressively mismanaged. And mm-hmm. so what I think we're going to see now is um, kind of like what happened with Sulla, where he kind of broke most of those norms about like, no, you can't bring soldiers into the city. Not cool. You can't you can't just go in and like, you know, nuke everything. Um, I think we're going to start seeing kind of a breakdown of a more naked recognition or, uh, you know, a, a greater recognition of just like the naked truth about political power and mm-hmm. that we are going to have people that just get in and once they're president, they just kind of they do their thing. They got they got the administrative state all set up and and it will kind of be like what government was like under the Julio Claudians is that like technically you did have other branches of government like they did have the Senate. They did have the cursus honorum. They had, you know, quaestors who, you know, then you had, you had assembly. Yeah. Yeah. You had, you had the popular, you had the tribal assembly, you had the, um, the centuriate, you know, assembly, uh, which were all technically passing laws, but they were all kind of just, they all kind of deferred to the mm-hmm. princeps, the chief, you know, the first among citizens, the, uh, you know, Caesar Augustus, um, or Tiberius or, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, they all kind of just deferred to what the emperor said. And so I think that's going to be what's more likely is that we have uh, kind of a breakdown of strict republicanism and you have a person ascend to power and they have an administrative state and they just kind of rule over that and and factions, political factions in the Senate or in the other legislative entities kind of back it up. I think that's really smart. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's an interesting parallel that I heard someone make. I forget who it was, but someone mentioned that the big difference with Trump, obviously he's managed things differently than the past, but one of the biggest changes is that he pulled back the veil on a lot of the flaws in our institutions, and including not just government institutions, but also the media. I mean, he was the guy that popularized the term fake news, And he also talked about all of the flaws with, you know, the drain the swamp and that kind of stuff. 
which was kind of shocking to a lot of Americans who had always kind of grown up believing that our institutions were fundamentally a source for good and they were doing things better than they were, you know, not not and not well. And so I wonder what's going to happen now that we've pulled back the veil and we see the flaws of our institutions. And like you said, I think we are going to have a more naked understanding of what the flaws are. And the question is, what happens after that? Is it going to be, oh, we recognize these flaws, let's fix them? Unfortunately, I don't see that as the predominant uh, you know, energy direction right now. The other direction is sort of what you talked about, where you know, we sort of give a lot of power, like the executive branch essentially becomes more and more powerful so that the Senate and the House and the judiciary kind of all become extensions of the executive branch. And by the way, that could be good or bad. Like life under Caesar Augustus was fantastic. I mean, that was the Pax Romana and he was a great leader. So you can have these philosopher kings that even though they're authoritarian, do a really good job. Um, but you could also have, you know, Nero or Caligula. <laughs> it's like, oh, this sucks. This became, yeah. this shitty real quick. Um, something that I wonder, and this is like super conspiratorial. Um, you know, there is, this is like a, a kind of a different, a little bit of a different topic, but you know, there's this, uh, author Russ Baker. I can't really vouch for whether he's like good or just a quack. I've just heard of him, but he has this theory that, the Bush family was involved with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And he lays out like, it was like, I guess George H.W. Bush was in Dallas for some reason, like on that, on the day of his assassination. And like, he can't really answer for why. And he was working with the CIA. And then like, I don't know, he, he lays out a bunch of stuff. But something I was thinking of before, you know, recording is, what if the CIA, the CIA played the role of like Praetorian Guard, you know, mm. in in choosing who the executive is and like they kind of just act as gatekeepers and make sure that like, no, like we don't want this person. They're going to challenge our power. So let's just kind of keep them out, you know, not outright like killing right. someone. It's like, no, that's just, a, that's a very valid concern. And a lot of people have talked about how, you know, the president is only in office for four years. He's essentially a temporary employee of the state. The actual state that's, you know, the people who work in military and the CIA who are, lifetime, you know, members of our government, those people often have a greater understanding of the big picture, and they may have a greater ability to effectuate how the big picture evolves. So I think you're right that there could be a lot of things happening behind the scenes. And part of what I wonder is if there is an intentional divisiveness being uh, promoted so that you don't have the bottom 90% unifying and demanding UBI and Medicare for all and all of these other things, you instead continue to have these divisions of race and politics and, you know, all of the dimensions that we've talked about. So it is a fair point. I mean, I have no idea what the validity of it is or not. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so about Rome, right? <laughs> just right back to it. Yeah. At least at least we had a Praetorian guard tie in. Right? Um, yeah, I think I think your your take here is is, you know, right. And, and interesting is that uh, is that, you know, th there could be some benefits to having an extensive administrative state with a good shepherd at the head of it. Um, but then, you know, it also opens it up to horrible abuse and mm -hmm. like mismanagement and all of that. And and 
you know, I don't, you know, if I wanted to thematically bring it, bring it all together, I'd say like, we can't really compare the U S to the, to the Roman empire in a true one-to-one that just doesn't exist. And, and, and unfortunately I think that there are a lot of people on the right, especially and like alt-right who like try to, I don't know, they like abuse classics. I think they like take, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, or, you know, ancient history, they take examples and, and they try to make like a modern Rome and all of that. And it's just, it's weird and it's, bad and it distorts history in order to promote a social vision conveniently their social vision (laughs) um and so you know making clear that that's not what we're doing we're just kind of looking at the similarities but uh yeah yeah and i I would say that it's less about the you know the individual facts of what happened in rome and it's more about the broad trends that we see not only with with rome but with lots of empires So I have some interesting stats, which is that the average length of time that a civilization lasts is 350 years. The median is 330 years. And the longest empire ever was the Aksumite Empire, which lasted over a thousand years uh, in India. And so America has been around for 244 years so far. So we're already getting up to the median age of an empire and there does seem to be these these typical trends where you know you're established you rise you establish this hegemony and then there is this decline that tends to happen almost in every i mean literally in every example throughout history so there's this common experience that we can learn from and even if it's not an exact comparison you know there's that famous quote which is that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So I think that, you know, Americans and just people around the world could do a lot better to learn from history. Um, and I think like just having more of an intellectual uh, value system where it's really merit based on, on, the, on the merit of the ideas themselves, rather than, you know, which tribe are you a part of and which ideas does my tribe promote? So, and then uh, I, I guess the final thing I'll, I'll say, and I'll let you have the, the last words, is that Elon Musk tweeted, today, we must pass the great filter. And so he is very much aware that it's not for granted that we're going to pass the great filter, which is getting to the level where we can go beyond our planet and colonize other planets and establish an interstellar hegemony. That's... That's not for granted. And, you know, Elon's working his ass off to try to get us there. But if the systems collapse before that is, is uh, you know, before enough steps are taken, then we may, you know, just follow the same fate as many other civilizations in the past. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. The, you know, I, I'm assuming that his filter is referring to space travel just because of what he mm-hmm. does. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it'll be interesting. I think it's probably with outside of our lifetime, will there be colonies, you know, active colonies in space, whether it's on the moon or Mars or whatever. Um, hopefully it would be within our lifetime. That would be really cool. Mm-hmm. But um, I would probably stay on Earth. I don't think I'd want to travel into space. It's, it's just oh, me either. But it's nice to know that we've got a second hard drive yeah. copy over there. Yeah, and there are some nuts who would be like, "Yeah, no, I'll live on Mars. I don't care." Like people, <laughs> people that are just like eating, uh, what's that stuff like in the toot, like Soylent, but you know, <laughs> just like people that are just like, "Eh, yeah, I'll just like, I don't know, like, 
I'll just watch Netflix and eat Soylent and do my like my eight hours of Mars colony chores and just like <laughs> enjoy my life. But um, but yeah, no, I mean he's right. Is that we can't take thing we can't take the present state of affairs for granted. Whether whether we are moving beyond the planet or whether we're just sticking around and making sure that the planet is healthy and that we're in a good ecosystem to continue surviving as as humans. Um, and so that requires a lot of reflection. You're right. Mm -hmm. And I'd just end by saying, if you want social institutions and society at large to continue working, people got to buy into it. Yeah. And if they, if they don't have a reason to, then, then it's gone. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you, Brett, for helping us kick off season two of Hence the Future. Thanks, man. And thank you all for listening. This has been the fall of Rome and the future of America. And what will inevitably happen. We'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future.